0: Welcome to the Prioritizing Prevention Translating Science to Practice podcast. Our goal is to prioritize prevention conversations that matter. Our topic for today is leveraging the power of partnership to address social determinants of health with special guests, Nita Kua Barrett Orsick. Now here's our host, Holly Raffle.
1: Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 9 of the Ohio Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion podcast, Prioritizing Prevention. Translating science to practice. I'm Holly Rappel, faculty director for the center, and I am pleased to welcome this week's guest, Nita Kua Barrett Orset. Nita is an operations director and program manager at the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School. Through her work, Nita Kua manages Call for Ideas, a flagship program of community-driven initiatives, where she strives to unify the diverse Central Texas population to improve population health. In addition to her role as program manager, Nita Kua works as a registered nurse. Prior to her work in Central Texas, she also worked as a naturalist in Hawaii, Alaska, Mexico, and the Pacific Northwest. She serves on the board of the Travis Audubon Society and was recently named a Net Zero Hero by the City of Austin's Office of Sustainability. This month, the center is focusing on leveraging the power of partnerships to address social determinants of health and I'm so excited to share a conversation with Nita Kua about the impact of meaningful relationships, social determinants of health, and place based initiatives. Welcome and thank you for joining us, Nita Kua.
0: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: While we're taping this uh, podcast prior to your visit to Ohio because of scheduling, I wanted to acknowledge that you are the keynote speaker for the 2023 Ohio Prevention Conference in mid November. We hope that this content will extend on your session at OPC and give our audience and conference guests more to noodle on as they work to consider the impacts of social determinants of health and their work. So, Niakua, you've worked in a variety of different projects throughout your career, and I'm eager to learn more about the great work that you've done. So let's start by spending a few minutes discussing what led you uh, to, you know, start the Call for Ideas program. So to ground us in our discussion today, tell me about
0: the path you walk to get to your current role? Well, I will say that it is a very windy and probably somewhat unconventional role. As you mentioned in the introduction, uh, my first career was as a naturalist. And so folks um, may not necessarily know what a naturalist is, but essentially it's like a park ranger, but I don't have that green hat that's on. I would talk to people about the natural world, about animals, about geography, about the environment. And I did the majority of this work working on boats. And I was on boats for nearly a decade and realized, you know, it was time for some feet on land time. I'd spend a lot of time on boats, but what could I do on land? And I just gave myself a lot of time to decide what I might want to do next. And I found that I was really drawn to public health without necessarily having a strong definition of public health, and particularly with upstream interventions. So those preventative interventions. And I started looking at MPH programs and found a program at the University of Texas at Austin that combined public health work with nursing, and so the program that I did was a, a, a very intense program where I earned my RN, my registered nursing license, in 14 months, and then I spent the next couple of years working on my public health master's and. This correlated with my previous career and that I was a naturalist for a long time, but then also ended up earning my captain's license. And so having the captain's licensure gave me a lot of flexibility. And so when I looked at the MPH programs, I thought, you know, let's just go ahead and be a nurse as well, because people really will always need nurses. So that end goal remained the same of wanting to work in upstream and preventative healthcare and healthcare programming. Thank you so much for sharing
1: your fascinating background. And I'm so interested in, you know, being a naturalist and focusing on, you know, ecology in the natural world and then being drawn to public health and looking at social determinants of health. How does that background in um, ecology translate
0: to public health and social determinants of health? I think there's a very strong correlation and that we're working with systems and so the animal that i focused on in the beginning of my career was the humpback whale i learned everything i could about humpback whales and really became a specialist but they're a part of a much larger system and so as i got to learn more about the different components of the ocean ecosystem you know i just course, found it more fascinating and really realized the importance on not just focusing on the whale, but on the system itself. And I think that's very similar in public health. We may not focus just on one person. We're not necessarily focusing on one issue because things are so interconnected, whether it be through the healthcare system, whether it be through uh, social systems or or legal systems. So it's really taking that systemic view and breaking it down into um, an understandable and palatable way and then working to address it.
1: Absolutely. It's so fascinating, like the connection from ecology in the natural world to this public health concept and how did that lead you to sort of birthing this call for ideas initiative uh, to extend on your belief that the environment is an important factor in people's health and that people aren't alone. They also are in the environment within relationship, whether it's relationship with other human beings or relationship with systems.
0: So the call for Ideas is part of the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School. And as far as schools go, we're pretty young. So we were voted into existence by Travis County voters in 2012. And that resulted in needing to build a medical school from the ground up. Now, at the time, around 2013, 2014, there were maybe a handful, a little bit more uh, medical schools that had a Department of Population Health. So immediately, my interest was piqued when I learned that there would be a Department of Population Health. With recruitment for the medical school, though, it meant taking uh, or rather, recruiting Mm -hmm. folks from throughout the country or even other parts of Texas. And that's not, that doesn't really come with a good understanding of what life is like for Central Texans. And so Call for Ideas is a flagship program of the Department of Population Health, and that intentionally seeks ideas from community members and community organizations to tell us their priorities about health. So health challenges, health needs, health opportunities, and then to tell us the idea about how they want to address that health challenge, need, or opportunity. And we really kept that systems view, which for some people sometimes was challenging because health is so many different things. But we utilized the World Health Organization's definition of health. We put that definition on our, our application so that folks could focus on that. And really stating, you know, to summarize that definition is that health is not just merely the absence of illness. It is a state of total well being. And that includes physical, mental, emotional. So you could break um, a person down into a system there as well. It's not just um, what your physical health may be like, but your whole systemic health is. Absolutely. And as we continue our conversation,
1: I'd like to pause for a moment to design the concept of social determinants of health for our listeners. Social determinants of health are the conditions in the environments where people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risks. They have a major impact on people's health, well-being, and quality of life. Examples of social determinants of health include safe housing, transportation, neighborhoods, racism, discrimination, violence, education, job opportunities, income, access to food, uh, polluted air and water, and language and literacy skills. So really the system that, it, that humans interact with on a daily basis And Nidakua, I know that social determinants of health are an important factor in your work as they are prevention. And we know that it's vital to work with communities to look at social determinants of health when they're creating positive change. So the program you work with, Call for Ideas, is a place-based program. So let's start, you know, by telling our audience a little bit about what a place-based program is.
0: Definitely. So place-based really means intentionally Knowing where you are uh, with the history of the place that you are and the community where you are. So, when we say a place based programming, we don't, that means the opposite of, you know, say having a, a program that is dealing with hypertension and then going into a community and saying, this is what you need to do to address hypertension. Were the experts. Um, Instead, place based means going into a community, looking at the landscape. um, What is, you know, what is walkable in the community? What do the grocery stores look like? What is the community like? What is important to the community? So, place based really focuses on um, uh, promoting the strengths of a community. And enhancing that community based on what the community wants and needs, and maybe not what a funder, (laughs) or say, uh, a medical provider might think should be the priority for that community.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for um, really providing our listeners with the context of what place-based programs are. Um, So tell me a little bit about why you think place-based programs are essential to address social
0: determinants of health. Yes, there's an, I'll, I'll go back on that hypertension example. And I will say that this is in a completely made up example. I don't, I am not throwing anyone on, under the bus, but I think it's a great um, scenario to explain sometimes how, even though we have good intentions, they may not turn out well. And so say we had uh, some chronic disease management team that thinks, you know, hey, and this neighborhood over here, there's high rates of hypertension. And so what's been successful in other areas is to um, do remote blood pressure monitoring. So why don't we do remote blood pressure monitoring in the community? Well, you can also alternatively ask the community, hey, we're seeing a lot of hypertension. Why do you think that that's happening here? And what do you think might be some solutions? And in that scenario, you know, someone one may say, oh, we'll take a look around. We don't have grocery stores around here with fresh produce. We have corner stores. Um, we have uh, low cost uh, convenience shops. I don't want to name any brand names, um, but, you know, stores that don't necessarily have Um, healthy choices for folks. And so what would be great is we had better food options because that's something that affects our day-to-day life, right? And so you really, really getting towards the same goal. Don't think anybody wants anyone in their life to have hypertension or have any other type of chronic disease, but really leading with the priorities um, of that place to help solve that problem. And so you're working together in a place based initiative. So, in our case, working with community to, um, with a shared goal of solving a problem.
1: Absolutely. And I love how you kind of pointed to, you know, there's multiple ways to get to the same destination. And uh, it just depends on who's invited to chart the course, right? And so if you are interested, and some of our audience members I know are, in starting a place-based program, how do you get one going? Who do you talk to? And what does that look like when you're really shifting that approach to leading community forward?
0: I think that I've been, well, I know that I've been really lucky in working with a call for ideas program because that was the intent. Um, It was to work directly with community and to solicit ideas from community about how to improve health. And we worked to make it very accessible. The application itself was just two questions, and about 750 words or less. We uh, really broadcast out in the community a lot of word of mouth, a lot of showing up at meetings, and to get folks who were already active. in some initiative of some part of the social structure to submit an idea. As the medical school has grown and as we have grown, not every initiative that we work on is the call for ideas. But what we do note is important is to incorporate lived experience as soon as we can into a project. And so that means Working with community as experts, you know, likely in an ideal situation, I know that budgets do not always allow this, but a group of experts, because you know no one community is a as a monolith, right? There's a lot of diversity within one community. But I would say as soon as you can bring community in into the planning stages, that is that will set you up for success um, once that program is implemented. And I will say the call for ideas is a pretty easy structure to replicate. Um, We have no um, trademark on it. I think when you're inviting folks to give ideas about how to improve health, Um, This is a little bit different, right, than inviting folks to necessarily tell you their grievances or uh, put something in a complaint box. It is, hey, this is an issue I see and this is a way that I um, I can address that issue or this issue can be addressed. But you also don't necessarily need to create a brand new program just to work with community. There are a lot of existing, you know, interest groups um, that and a particularly community-based interest groups that have folks that I think have those shared goals um, align with the work that we do often in government and wanting that goal of better healthcare outcomes. So it's being intentional about seeking those folks out and inviting them to come and participate. In the process. Thank you. So one question that's been
1: on my mind as you've been speaking, Nidakua, is the definition of success. So when you and the teams that you work with talk about calls for ideas, how do
0: you know that the program is successful? I love this question because it is in our first meeting that we have with our community partner, we ask them, what does success look like for you in this project? And then use that as the basis, as how we're, how we're going to achieve You know, we'll work over the next year to 18 months together. That success measure may change, but starting with what success looks like is very important. We can't define what success looks like For these projects and have it be authentic. Uh, We also work on a large uh, diversity of projects. And so we can't just have, you know, one or two measures that we like to use as our core measures of success. So it really varies based on um, the projects that we're working on. I will say that when we're leading with community and our partners so like our true partners definition of success we stay true to that and then may enhance it with more public health measures um, but we don't want to lead with that right that feels too structured that feels too clinical um we want to go beyond how many people attended a program or how many people filled out a survey at the end of this program. And, you know, sometimes that can be really hard. I think specifically with public health to find success at six weeks into a program. Sometimes it might not be, you know, nine months to a year that the great work that you're doing is really starting to show up in the quote-unquote measurable ways in community. So there's definitely a lot of variety um, in what our success measures are.
1: Thank you so much for really walking the walk, right? You can't evaluate a program with an external way if you come in and ask the community, for input, the community has to be involved in all aspects and that includes evaluation. So I really appreciate how uh, the Call for Ideas program is structuring every aspect of their program to lead with community. I have really enjoyed learning about the Call for Ideas and how it's been infused into the community, but also into the other projects that you do uh, by continually asking the community for feedback And it makes me consider how important relationships are in the public health space, or in our case, Ohio's prevention uh, system, fostering an environment where you place an emphasis on trust, you put intention with your communication, and you privilege empathy is foundational to developing relationships and leading projects that make an impact. So how do you define meaningful relationships in your work and how do they lay the groundwork for those collaborative projects?
0: Gosh, I'm going to start with time. Meaningful relationships take time. And I think that I'm using the we here and that our team, I think, collectively had to remind ourselves of that and to also model that for other folks within the medical school, you know, where we, in the end, we're still doing projects and initiatives that we want to make impact and we want to get to that impact eventually, but it doesn't make sense to rush through that relationship building part, just so we can get to an outcome or something that we can report on. And so it's really important to us that we get to know our partners beyond, you know, titles, beyond maybe credentials that might be behind our last names or behind their last names. And sitting within a Brand new medical school, or at least, you know, relatively new. But when this program started, it was brand new. We were also very cognizant of how it might feel strange as a community member to walk into this really fancy building, right? And there's doctors and professors and folks walking around everywhere. And we were very intentional about. Letting our community partners know that they are experts, that their lived experience is their expertise, and that we value that just as much as you might value, as we might value the opinion of a doctor or the input of a professor. And so I think with that meaningful relationship, you also need to understand that there is a power differential. And even if you don't talk about it and work to really dismantle that, you know, through your actions um, and through your words. And yes, it but and again, going back to that, it's nothing you can rush. It really just takes time. I know there's a
1: saying that I love is that you can only move as fast as the speed of trust. And if we all take a step back and think of what it takes to build trust, then we understand the time component. Absolutely. Well, thank you for providing a lot of strategies for how to foster relationships. One question is that we know that these projects are not singular efforts. So leading efforts often involves collaboration of multiple stakeholders and multiple st- sectors. So
0: how would you define in your practice shared leadership? Shared leadership, I'll go back to, you know, dis- dismantling that power differential Even when you have say a more traditional partnership, you may have city government or state government, right? Um, There still will exist some some type of um, power differential um, within those different systems. I think I'm lucky in that when I started out my first career as a naturalist, I worked with a captain who insisted that for the six crew that were on this boat, it only had our names. It didn't have what our role was on the boat. And from this particular captain's experience, it was, or from his, you know, point of view, it was, I'm the captain, but I can still get somebody a cup of coffee. I don't want them to think like, oh, well, I'm not going to ask this person that. I'm going to defer to someone else, right? And so it's been great to, you know, just with that background, adapt that to this type of work. Once we are working intentionally, right, to to have that shared leadership, I think that opens up more of an opportunity for folks to um, eventually feel comfortable if they're not already comfortable to share their ideas. I think it also gives the opportunity for more creativity, uh, particularly in shared decision making, right? If shared leadership is shared decision making, so we're not going to look to one person to be the decision maker, or we're going to defer to the quote unquote, you know, top expert in their field to make the decision. So I think that shared leadership allows for more collaboration. And I know I've said it again, never <laughs> said it before, but it comes, you know, that just leads to better outcomes for the project overall.
1: And to bring it back to this notion of social determinants of health, we know that uh, those are value neutral, right? Like everyone has social determinants of health and it's where you capitalize on your strengths and you sort of shore up those liabilities. That communities get healthier. So how do you think shared leadership contributes to making an impact in areas of social determinants of
0: health? I like to think of it if we get ourselves back into the clinic, but we'll get out of the clinic very quickly to work on these social determinants of health. But I, you know, look at my nursing um, background and being in a clinic, I was very lucky to work in an environment where I was part of a multidisciplinary care team. So worked, um, of course, with doctors, nurse practitioners, also dietitians and social workers. And so each patient was treated systemically. We're looking not just, you know, my role taking vitals, uh, not just what's your blood pressure today, um, not just um, where the pain is today and how I can help alleviate that. But really, you know, what's your week been like? What's your month been like? What's going on at home? I really loved that type of health care Um, I've definitely seen more of those models grow in the past several years. I'd like to see more of it and and hope that that happens. But when we have that shared leadership and outside of the clinic environment, we have folks, um, stakeholders who really have um, an area of focus and can bring in a perspective that we wouldn't necessarily have if we were doing it on our own. Or maybe with just, you know, one other partner that's somewhat similar to us.
1: Medico, I really
0: enjoyed our conversation. It actually brought me back to
1: my own graduate school experience. I studied a lot of um biostats. And in the statistics courses, I took them in biological sciences. And so the system of ecology and the public health really brought that together. And it was so special to sit with folks um, who looked at The environment in a different way than i defined it and how we have so many tools to move forward whether environmental health or public health together so i have thoroughly enjoyed this for professional but also personal reasons thank you so much and unfortunately it's getting time for us to land this plane here and this is our audience's favorite part of our podcast so we have some rapid fire questions for you and in keeping with the ecology theme
0: of uh, falling leaves or blooming flowers? Oh, that is... Okay, first up, I'm gonna say right now, I'm terrible with rapid fire questions. I tend to overthink everything. Today, my answer is falling leaves. Had a great walk this morning. It's very beautiful here in Central Texas. And I know if you asked me that in the spring, yeah. my, my answer would change. So the next question of is about movies. In the movie theater or via streaming services? Definitely via streaming services. I love the comfort. And this is the last
1: question that we ask everybody. So you find yourself reaching into that big bowl of M&Ms. Are you going for the playing or the peanut? Definitely peanut. Thank you so much, Nita Kua, for sharing your time, your experience with us, as well as your service to Ohio. Thank you to our listeners for listening to the Ohio center of excellence for behavioral health prevention and promotion podcast, prioritizing prevention, leveraging the power of partnerships to address social determinants of health. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media or set the podcast to automatically download on your favorite channel. To catch all the latest from the Center of Excellence, follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, at Ohio Prevention COE, or visit us at preventioncoe.ohio.gov to sign up for our monthly newsletter. There are so many people who work behind the scenes to make this podcast a reality, and I would just like to take a moment to thank them all. This has
0: been the Prioritizing Prevention Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, Apple Music, and many more. This program is funded by Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services. And for more information about us, please visit preventioncoe.ohio.gov. Thank you for listening.